how do we allow creators to be creators? And as a creator becomes a creator and starts building and developing their own class of assets, why can't they create an economy around those assets for themselves that is governed by themselves? This is Open Out Crypto, a podcast exploring how blockchain and cryptocurrencies are shaping the financial markets of tomorrow with your hosts, Rumi Morales and Colleen Sullivan. Before we even begin, here's our obligatory disclaimer. The views Rumi and I share on the show are our own and not attributable to our respective firms and any other entities or projects we're involved with. Our firms may be investors or traders in some of the companies and projects we discuss on the show. Nothing we say should be considered as investment advice. And while we're always trying to be as accurate and timely as possible, sometimes we're wrong. You should always do your own research. Finally, I'm a lawyer, but not yours, and nothing I say should be construed as legal advice. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Open Out Crypto. I am Rumi Morales. I am joined with Colleen Sullivan. We are so happy to speak with you today, bridging the worlds of traditional finance and cryptocurrency, digital assets, blockchain. Colleen, it's so awesome to see you. Again, you are repping New York. I see you've got a New York Yankees cap on. Always, always. It wouldn't be a good <laughs> podcast without it, Rumi. Right. As, so says the Cubs fan as well, right? Anyways, I just wanted to uh, say good morning and tell our listeners that we're going to speak on something that I was just thinking about earlier today. It's so topical, but unfortunately evergreen around ransomware and security issues as it relates to um, the utilization of crypto. Um, for those who have seen the news now for... A couple of months, I think you are seeing a growing trend, I think, and unfortunately for the Bitcoin space in particular, uh, we can get into what we think about the ransomware, um, the ransomware attacks that are happening and how that's going to be affecting the industry. Colleen, I know you've been thinking about this for a while, right? I have, you know, and before we dig into ransomware specifically, I thought I'd share a conversation that I had with a former high-ranking U.S. regulator. Um, we were talking about how the crypto industry and regulators and policymakers need to work more collaboratively. Of course, something that we talk about all the time on this show. And, you know, for example, it's really incumbent on the industry to help regulators and policymakers see the future of the crypto blockchain mm -hmm. space. I think sometimes, Rumi, you and I, it's easy for us to take for granted that we have the privilege of listening to entrepreneurs pitch us all week on the amazing projects they're working on that are really gonna be the future that we all live in. And regulators and policymakers don't have the benefit of that. So we really have to be intentional about bridging that gap. Similarly, you know, regulators are waking up every single day to briefings on the threats that we face as a nation. Potential terrorist attacks, weapons proliferation, human trafficking, and of course, all of this ransomware activity. So they're privy to information that we don't see or really have enough appreciation for. And hopefully through working together, we can get to a better middle ground. That is, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I did never really thought of it that way before. And I think that's a great way to phrase it. Like we, by talking to entrepreneurs daily, but being in ways entrepreneurs ourselves too, uh, with the organizations that we're building up, um, we do get a lot of exposure right, to to the benefits, but also the risks. But in general, just overall education of what's happening in the crypto space, we know that regulators and policymakers are not 
We know that they're thinking and about this all the time, especially as ransomware attacks increasingly focus on utilities, municipal governments, hospitals, you know, infrastructure uh, that governments need to be in charge of. So obviously it's, it's they're more familiar with it. They're more focused on it. And unfortunately, there's ransomware cases. Bitcoin is being used. Yeah, for sure. So, all right, into the details, Rumi. So over the 4th of July weekend, you know, a Russia-based cybercrime group called Revol. Now, I've heard this pronounced a number of different ways. R-Evil. So this group claimed responsibility for infiltrating a network monitoring tool sold by a software company called Kaseya. Now, I've heard that pronounced in different ways, too, so that's just what I'm going to go with. But basically, they took over files belonging to about 500 small to medium-sized businesses in the United States, Europe, and Asia, and demanding $70 million in Bitcoin to unlock all of them. Now, apparently, this Kaseya has about 40,000 firms that use its software, which they then provide to their clients. So obviously, this could have been much worse. Um, Mm -hmm. And the FBI has categorized this as a supply chain ransomware attack. Now, of course, this follows Colonial Pipeline, which halted fuel supply to the East Coast for multiple days, and then another attack earlier on the world's largest meat producer. So as you noted, all of this is really raising awareness of the threat posed by ransomware, and of course the role that cryptocurrencies are playing in these attacks. This has then led the Biden administration to convene a meeting um, with officials from the State Department, the Pentagon, the Justice Department, and other members of the intelligence community to talk about you know, what's next. And you know, to the point you made at the start here, it's not too far of a leap from where we are here to an attack on the energy grid or a nuclear power plant. Right, because they're, go- they're going after infrastructure or things within governments where honestly, they don't have the money to be as up to date as possible. A lot of the tech systems they're using are very outdated. They don't have the resources or necessarily the, the, the human talent to be able to counter these increasingly sophisticated attacks. And what's also interesting is how much of this stuff is now becoming off the shelf, you know, RAAS, ransomware as a service. You just basically utilize software to be able to conduct these ransoms, you know, these hostage situations on data. Um, and, and what gets me here uh, with with Biden and others is, oh, you know, this is perhaps the, a very, very clear example of how cryptocurrency can be used. Well, that's where I was going to go next. Yeah, is the problem is that the narrative does seem to be exactly that. The cryptocurrencies are the problem instead of focusing on the clear vulnerabilities in our computer systems and how companies are protecting the systems. Right, right. I heard, I saw so many pundits on TV saying, in order to stop ransomware, ban cryptocurrency. No, yeah. I mean, so let's look at it this way. So if these weaknesses didn't exist in these computer systems, neither does ransomware. So case in point, on several occasions from 2017 to 2020, employees at Kaseya, or Kaseya, however we're going to say it, Kaseya, you know, flagged an array of cybersecurity concerns to the company executives, including outdated code, use of weak encryption and passwords, failure to adhere to basic cybersecurity practices like regularly patching software, and a focus on sales over security. Now, these types of weak cybersecurity allegations have also been made by former employees of Twitter, SolarWinds, and JSB following those types of attacks. So 
this kind of led me down the proverbial rabbit hole to look at the history of ransomware because I was really curious. So what do you think? Should we dive in a little bit here? I think a little bit, uh, of course, because what we always try to do in the show as well is provide context. And many times, I think an overarching theme of Open Out Crypto is what we're seeing here is not necessarily brand new, right? History rhymes. And I think it'd be great to be able to put ransomware in context, Colleen. All right, let's do it. So I'm going to start really, really basic, Rumi, with what is ransomware? So there's essentially two types. There's crypto ransomware, which encrypts Mm -hmm. files and data. And then the hackers will provide a key to decrypt the files once the ransom is paid. The second is called locker ransomware. This type of ransomware locks the computer or other device and prevents users from using it altogether, but leaves the data untouched. Now, locker ransomware is going to be less popular because you can't use your computer at all to send money. So that just doesn't happen all that frequently. You're just completely locked out of it. And, right. you know, prior, so then I was curious too, like how, how was ransomware conducted prior to cryptocurrencies? And of course, mm-hmm. prior to the launch of the Bitcoin system, online ransomware payments um, were not super readily available, but victims would be instructed to pay ransoms by mailing prepaid cards, Western Union deliveries, and even dropping right. off would, duffel bags of cash. I would imagine that the, the, the amounts were smaller as well. I mean, in general, we're seeing an increase in amounts of, of ransom in these attacks too, right? Yeah, and, and then of course, you know, the availability of cryptocurrencies combined with the use of Tor, right, the onion router mm-hmm. network to communicate anonymously has provided a more efficient way for ransomware attackers to get paid. Now, That's not to say that a significant amount of hacking isn't still done through our traditional financial system. And I'm going to add this article to the show notes, but I read an article um, recently that talks about the world of BEC, or business email compromise attacks. And this article was fascinating. It was about the arrest and downfall of a guy named Ramon Abbas, better known as Hush Puppy on social media. Apparently, he's a a big influencer from Nigeria who has 2.4 million Instagram followers. He would post about his lavish lifestyle and his Gucci outfits and, you know, had Uh quite a following. Um, But in any case, he's been accused of laundering hundreds of millions of dollars through these BEC attacks. And this is generally... It starts with someone hacking into a corporate email account and then using social engineering attacks like phishing. Um, And once inside, they don't steal anything at first. They just watch quietly incoming and outgoing email until they sort of learn what's going on. And then they start to replicate invoices. And they will have payments wired to their bank accounts that are not recovered. And to me, it's amazing. So in the FBI reported that in 2020, there were 20,000 BEC attacks against American businesses for 1.8 billion in losses. So I raise this because this, these types of attacks make ransomware payments look really small, but we don't hear about them. And these are happening with our traditional financial system. So anyway, I just wanted to interject that before going back to our history here. Yeah, no, that's that's really critical to point out. I think any most of our listeners can 
probably attest to receiving at least one email from some Nigerian prince, right? I mean, we've had we've had email phishing schemes for a while. And so maybe it seems like, oh, this has been around for a while. This is now just a general cost of business. Improve your email security systems. You guys just be smarter about it. And 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 yay, like we're handling the problem. But the problem still exists in the tunes of billions of dollars, like you said. It's just that like the hot media trend spotlight right now is on this thing called ransomware and people making excuses around not being able to fix it. Oh, this is too hard on our data. So let's just cop out and say, well, we'll get rid of cryptocurrency. I loved I loved your point earlier, though, Colleen, where you said if you didn't have the software issues or then you wouldn't have the ransomware, right? I mean, you need to be able to fix and focus on the data and the technology. Uh, you're not you're not going to necessarily blame the tool uh, that is being utilized to get the ransom, just like you're not going to blame saying, oh, let's take out the US dollar or let's take out all fiat because we don't want to be paying hostages in, in cash or, or whatever anymore. You, like we always talk about with money laundering, you don't blame money for money laundering. You shouldn't blame you shouldn't blame Bitcoin for dark money laundering. You either. bet. Yeah, totally. Well, okay, so back, you know, down memory lane here. So the, the first ransomware attack occurred in nineteen eighty nine. It was called the AIDS Trojan of all things. Mm -hmm. And it was distributed through through floppy disks. So they were sent to victims in email. And of course it didn't spread very widely because not many people had personal computers in nineteen eighty nine and the internet was still so nascent. Now some of the ones that followed were actually kind of funny. There was one called the LoveSan virus. And with this one, the virus forced your computer to restart after about a minute and had two minutes hidden in the code. One, hence the name of this virus, it said, I just want to say, love you, San. The second, though, <laughs> said, Billy Gates, why do you make this possible? Stop making money and fix your software, which I thought was kind of hysterical. That's funny. Yeah, and then to the point you made earlier, you know, back then hackers wrote their own encryption code, so it wasn't necessarily very good. But today's ransomware is much more sophisticated with cyber criminals monetizing ransomware through, as you noted, offering these ransomware as a service programs. Um, most yeah. ransomware, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say, I was watching this, this funny, funny but educational clip by Trevor Noah uh, was talking about this. I think one of the ransomware as a service was like $39 online, you know, and he's, he's joking. He's like, what type of price? That seems like really low. Are you going to have to watch commercials while you're, you know, utilizing this just like you watch commercials on YouTube? But yeah, it's, it's as, a, as you've heard, software as a service or platform as a service ransomware as a service. Yeah, and this next piece I just thought was kind of interesting. So of course, a lot of the ransomware we're hearing about today is originating from Russia. Um, and in fact, Brian Krebs, who you probably know, Rumi, he's got this great blog, Krebs on Security. He had this post where he talked about how certain malware strains are hard-coded hard not to install in a list of countries that are the principal members of the Commonwealth of Independent States, so former Soviet satellites that are still have favorable relations to, with the Kremlin. And so the way they do this, I thought this was pretty interesting, is by checking for the presence of one of the, those languages associated with those countries on the system. And then if that language, like Russian, is detected, the malware will exit and fail to install. So it, this helps the attackers make sure that they're not attacking their own country. Now, oh, interesting. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and here's some alpha for our listeners. So this has caused people to add a second keyboard to their computers in Russian because it's hard for the malware to tell the difference between a Russian native machine 
and a foreign mm-hmm. machine pretending to be a Russian one. Be Russian. So, okay. so I've already done this, Rumi, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> so hackers stay away from my system. Um, but so let's fast forward to today, right? So in 2020, yeah. you know, 2,400 U.S.-based governments, healthcare facilities, and schools were the victims of ransomware. According to Chainalysis, in 2020, about 406 million worth of crypto was paid in ransomware attacks. This year, million. yes, compared to that 1.8 billion, billion in BEC, yep. right, in fiat. Um, so, so that that's kind of the current status, and I think around 81 million has been paid in cryptocurrency um, this year alone. So, the difference, though, and this is what I think is interesting, also. You know, we had the Colonial Pipeline attack, and I think it's important for listeners to remember that when payments are made in Bitcoin, they're generally traceable. So, and and this, right? I mean, this is a- Right, this is what I just wanted to jump into, was a few days after that ransom was paid, a huge chunk of it was recovered because of really the digital digital fingerprint that, that Bitcoin and crypto leaves. And I think what's also unique is, you know, when you pay a normal hostage with, say, your briefcase full of $100 bills or whatever, and um, in, let's say that's recovered from somewhere, you never know if those $100 bills are exactly the ones that were paid out or not. With these, you know, specifically, right, to the to the bit, singular Bitcoin, exactly which one was what it is so much more traceable uh, than a normal dollar bill would be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting. Katie Hahn, who's one of the co-GPs of the A16Z crypto funds and is a former Justice Department prosecutor, she noted in an article in the New York Times that in fiat systems, 99.9% of money laundering claims succeed. But with ransomware payments in crypto, you know, now we're seeing recoveries precisely because the criminals are using a traceable currency. So I I do think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, One other thing I wanted to note for our listeners is that a ransomware task force was created in the United States in April. This task force consists of 60 experts from software companies, cybersecurity vendors, government agencies, nonprofits, academic institutions, and they're developing a framework for tackling ransomware threats. Um, We'll drop this in the show notes too, but they released um, a paper that has 48 different actions that government and industry leaders can pursue to disrupt ransomware. Of course, one of those is calling for more regulation of crypto exchanges um, and the space more generally. And you know, the, the last thing, I kind of want to go back to one of the points you made, and as we've been talking about throughout all of this, is that as you scratch away the surface of this stuff, you know, you start looking at the challenges entities, centralized entities, right, Rumi, have had protecting our PII, our personal identifiable information. You know, Facebook, right? 30 million users' data hacked. And really sensitive data, religion, gender, relationship status, birthday, location, search history. Hackers can do bad stuff with that. February of 2020, 10.6 million hotel guests who stayed at the MGM resorts had their personal information posted on a hacking forum. I mean, I can go on and on. So to sort of end this with the key point, right? Cryptocurrency doesn't create these problems. And ransomware does not exist because of crypto. The ultimate solution is for businesses to pay for more secure systems and for companies like Microsoft to build more secure systems. That, to me, is what we should be focusing on. 
I agree with you 100%. Uh, but I also think we have to acknowledge this is a, another black eye uh, for crypto. For those who do not like it, it's an easy thing to point to. Um, but yeah, I, I think as you've argued so well here, it's not the right thing at all to be focused on. Um, but I am concerned because to your very first point, but us speaking with entrepreneurs daily and really understanding what crypto is about, the regulators and policymakers that are focusing on these security issues are not getting that same level of information or detail, and so may unnecessarily focus on cryptocurrency as a huge part of this issue, um, which we know it, while it plays it, while it is a tool, it is not the cause <laughs> or the effect of the worst of everything that's happening in the overall uh, data hostage taking space. Like you said, it's, it's, it still is a smaller part of the overall problems. It's a smaller part of the overall ransoms that are being taken in. But the spotlight on it is tremendous um, because, again, people are just are unfamiliar with crypto. And it it goes back, again, to education, needing more people to understand the, the benefits and risks of this. Um, but that in this ransomware example, I hate to say it. I've tried to tell you know a few people following that colonial pipeline thing, but I'm glad they kind of use crypto or Bitcoin um, versus some other form of payment because of its traceability. I don't know, Colleen. I'm still kind of fighting to to, to get this message through. I mean, hopefully, for anyone who's listening right now, uh, this provides you a little bit deeper understanding of how Bitcoin is um, being utilized and or weaponized here in this argument, but. Uh, I don't want this to be another thing where Colleen and I, sometimes you and I end our discussions by, by saying, well, we'll see, or we'll see how it turns out. In this case, I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing here. I, I love the way you closed it, your argument, Colleen. It's the right way. You need to focus on the data. Take care of your own house, please. Yes, and I think it's incumbent on us to help change the narrative or at least explain the other side. There's two sides to this story, and it's not just cryptocurrency is bad. Well, we're very happy here at Open Out Crypto to welcome Anoop Nanra to the podcast. Anoop is the global blockchain segment leader at AWS. Welcome, Anoop. It's so good to see you. Yeah, you too as well. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind starting off how you got into this blockchain business anyways. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's an interesting story. So in around 2014, back when I was at Cisco, um, I was part of I was part of uh, in, in 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 corporate development, so the chief strategy office, and really looking at, you know, what are those new technologies, those new trends that can be disruptive, uh, and you know, Cisco's equipment powers about sixty eight percent of the world's internet, which mm. means that in theory, virtually every blockchain transaction that that occurs passes over Cisco equipment at one point or another. And so I started asking the question, what, what would it mean if, if we were to blockchain enable the fabric of the internet itself? What does it mean in terms of performance, throughput, scalability, resiliency, security? Uh, how do we actually help improve the user experience uh, you know, end to end? You know, as, as blockchain is a, 
and and you know of blockchain applications of every category you know there's a, there's a client that lives on a device whether it's a mobile device or a pc and communication all the way up through across the core network into the cloud sometimes back into colo facilities so how do we you know if we were to blockchain enable switching and routing what right. does that what does that mean for 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 the blockchain community and as we went through the journey, what we realized was, you know, from from the perspective that we had, was that blockchain technology, by and large, is in fact a networking technology, right? It's the idea right. of being able to connect disparate systems where there's loose or no trust amongst one another. And so, how do we how do we provide that connectivity safely and securely? And so we started. We started our journey from there. We 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 piloted. Uh, we we prototyped a lot of really interesting use cases early on. We we actually built. Uh, I had a couple of interns build a a syndicated lending platform uh, that we actually demoed to the board uh, at Cisco. And 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 from there, you know, we 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 kind of we kind of got the 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 nod to you know go deeper, go, go further, explore this space a little bit more, uh, and try to understand, you know, what the business case would be. And so that, that set us on a set, set us on a journey, put me on my personal journey in this space. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as we kind of went through it, uh, realized that there's just so much work to be done, even, even today in 2021, um, there's still more work to be done. So, uh, that was, that was how I got started. I love it. It's I, the the fundamental questions that you're asking, I don't think they've been fully answered yet, right, by anyone. But I'm just grateful, grateful that you started asking them. Uh, but now you are at AWS, right? Yeah. And you just you joined relatively recently. Was it around a year ago or something? Yeah, I, I joined. I joined at the end of January last year, and and so and so my role there is I'm the I'm the global segment lead for blockchain within our partner organization, which is just a fancy way of saying that I'm responsible for our partner blockchain business. Mm. Uh, and and true to form, just like when I was back at Cisco, the question you know that that I always asked and I still continue to ask here is, how do we actually grow the tro the total addressable market in the blockchain space? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we know that there are a number of dominant protocols out there. Um, dominant networks out there, uh, but you know, I, my own personal opinion is that's that's not enough. I think we need more people uh, building applications, building solutions, building out networks. We absolutely need more diversity in this space. Um, I mean, I think that's something that still bugs me to this day. Yeah, uh, we're not going to disagree a, with you there, Anoop. That's for sure. <laughs> right. It's it's still a very heavily male-dominated space, right? And so I think you know we need more diversity in that space. So, you know, I, I think as I look at it from an AWS lens, we we want to support you know all networks, all protocols. Uh, we want to build a healthy community around mm -hmm. around this space, and so you know building on best practices and standards around security and, and policy and administration management, uh, scale, performance, all these things that, that questions that I started asking about back at Cisco, you know, I, I still want to continue asking and, and building a partner portfolio of, of solutions and technologies that really start addressing some of these uh, more latent needs. 
Well, I'd love to dig a little deeper there because I've heard you talk about AWS being the marketplace for market economies in this space. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that's a that's a concept that um, I've I've been testing with a number of partners um, to really understand. You know, we have we have a phenomenal marketplace, right? So partners can come in and and uh, have a have an engagement model with with end customers that is that is streamlined. It's efficient. Uh, customer can come to our our AWS marketplace and 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 really, uh, you know, put put to test and and and, and pressure test uh, and build out interesting applications on on the different you know, partner solutions that are hosted on our marketplace. And, you know, one of the things that I've, that I've been thinking about for a long time, and this started even before I was at AWS is, is how do we enable kind of continuous free form market creation, right? How do we allow creators to be creators? And as a creator becomes a creator and starts building and developing their own class of assets, why can't they create an economy around those assets for themselves that is governed by themselves? And right? this is art, music, games, anything. Everything. Any kind of intellectual capital, any kind of IP that someone creates. I mean, you know, this whole this whole uh, phenomenon around NFTs is is really interesting because it's pressure testing so many different things. Right. Uh, there was a there was a, a really interesting article on LinkedIn um, that kind of broke down what NFTs are and what they are not, right? And one of the things that I found really intriguing was this person called out that an NFT gives you permission and license to express that NFT, so you can present it, you can you can share it, you can copy it. I mean, as, as an owner of an NFT, but as the creator of the NFT, you still maintain the IP, mm -hmm. right? And now royalties, right? You think about royalties. all these artists who became famous after they passed away and didn't survive to see the fruits of their labor from a monetization yeah. standpoint. Now you can programmability, right? You can build that right into the contracts. You've got these royalties that carry on I mean, into perpetuity. Or also for... An for anyone who's had a meme of their own image and they've seen their face over sure. and over and over again on the internet and never ever got anything from it now that now they can uh the, the meme market nft is i think a real thing and I, I i do like the value it brings to people who are part of the original creation of that image and you capture that long tail right the long tail mm -hmm. of creators whereas today the ecosystems are set up just to get that very very top tier where they can earn money through like the TikTok program or the Snapchat creator program, but everybody else is, you know, who's really bringing all the value to that platform, isn't making any money from that. And and I, and I think so. You know, before I was a blockchain person, I was a media and entertainment advertising person, and yes. and I, you know, the intersection of of the two, you know, in the M and E space and 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 blockchain, particularly in this in interesting NFT space that we're in now. Uh, is really powerful, right? And it's it's powerful not only in terms of being able to create uh, not just not just opportunities for folks, but change the behaviors in 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 the way content is created, 
the way it's sold, the way it's distributed. Uh, and so, you know, I've, I've long held the belief that blockchain as a technology is, 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 a, is a mechanism for fundamentally changing behaviors, right? Uh, and, you know, my own kind of research, uh, you know, from, you know, even back in the, in the Cisco days, you know, I, I found that a lot of customers fit into one of two buckets. Either, either they were reactive to the technology or they thought of themselves as a change agent and they want to drive change in their industry. And so they're leaning in. And I think there's a really unique moment that we're in right now where in the, in the media and entertainment space and advertising space for, for you know, studios and, and just content creators in general to be able to kind of reset the, you know, how, how consumption occurs and, and, and how distribution occurs and how kind of royalties flow. The fact that, that, that you know, delivery and, and payment is a single transaction is incredibly powerful, but I think too few people understand that. Kind of on that note around being a change agent and blockchain for better forces of good, I'd like to ask you a little bit about sustainability use cases. I, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I know you, you, this is kind of almost, a, if I, if I can say it's almost a passion or it is a passion, I think you are also the co-founder and chair of something called the Open Sustainability Collaborative. Uh, so would you mind talking a little bit then about blockchain and sustainability and oh, use for cases sure. there? For sure. Uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> So, so, so I, I look at, I look at blockchain technology as, as, uh, really a mechanism to democratize innovation, right? The amount of creativity that we've seen in the last five years, I would say rivals the amount of creativity that we saw, uh, you know, at the emergence of the internet and took 15 to 20 years. Right. So we've taken all of that innovation and we've compressed it down to, you know, a shorter period of time. And a lot of that I think is due to one, the collective belief that this is a technology that empowers people. Um, and that it's a, it's, and the way it's being developed, I mean, it's, it's entirely open source for the most part. I mean, there are very few completely proprietary solutions and protocols out there. Right. And and, you know, it's it's being able to activate developers anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter where they come from, what their upbringing is. They have the ability, you know, so long as they have even even the, even the most basic Internet access and and and, you know, you know, uh, modest computing resources, they can they can get started. I don't know that that has actually existed before. Right. And so. As I look at that, as a, as a, as I look at blockchain as a as a mechanism to uh, democratize innovation, applying that to sustainability, I think is is really interesting and and in my opinion, really important. Uh, because one, we look at I think generically we look at sustainability as well. How does a company or an organization become carbon neutral? Mm-hmm. How do they uh, become a, a, a carbon negative company. A, and now the, the new narrative is how do they become a, a regenerative company? But that's a very limited view of sustainability. And I think the UN has it spot on where they said, well, the 
sustainability is is multifaceted. And so the development of the 17 UN Sustainability Development Goals is really important because not only does it affect technology, but it also, you know, allows and enables individuals to become really active participants in, 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 in how they help transform not only companies, organizations, and their local communities, but kind of the proof is in the pudding with when you start in, in, in introducing blockchain concepts, right? And so as we look at, you know, the, the, the most recent comments around, you know, Bitcoin and carbon footprint, well, the data is all there. I mean, there is a vast amount of, you know, Bitcoin that is, that is mined using renewable energy. The data is all there but it's fragmented, it's disorganized. So I think there is an opportunity to say, hey, you know, the data is here. Let's actually even tokenize that data as proof that a specific Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or whatever have digital asset was created and, and with truly renewable energy. But again, I mean, that's just, that's just a very specific view on sustainability. And, you know, so at, at the Open Sustainability Collaborative, what we're focused on is, is how do we invest in, in people to build enduring outcomes that are sustainability solutions that can be applied to broader sustainability problems that a lot of companies are struggling to, to achieve, right? And as, we, as we're kind of going through that process, we want, we want to say, well, you know, there's an investment angle here as well. You know, as a nonprofit, we, we want to enable and empower individuals to uh, develop not only technology, but business model innovation to empower themselves, to impact their local community. And in doing so, we said, well, how do we how do we bring an investment vehicle to some of these underserved, underrepresented communities where these individuals are in, where you know, your classical VC or corporate VC may not have any visibility into the brilliance that lives in some, in some of these regions of the world. And so we say, well, there's potentially an opportunity to create a, an investment vehicle where by collateralizing a sustainability in general, we can actually use that to fund and invest in, in individuals to help them deliver impact at, at global scale. You were absolutely right when you said, how much time do we have? Because I wish we had all the time in the world. I can tell we're just touching upon some really deep and profound questions, but I'm so happy to, to know of your involvement and in, in, in activities uh, to get people ultimately, and not just technology, but people in, involved in thinking about practical solutions for sustainability. So if we had more time, obviously we could even devote an entire podcast to sustainability, but there's some other remarkable things in your resume, Anoop. I think that you were the head of security at Cisco or Colleen? Colleen, catch me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, I feel like we were just talking about the light and the good Anoop. And I remember yeah. from all of our discussions over the years that in addition to running blockchain at Cisco, you were also a cybersecurity threat intelligence leader. So with Colonial Pipeline in the news and the Bitcoin ransom payment, I'm curious where you think this is going to go. Will we see these hacking groups, the dark side, become more clever with 
how they're receiving crypto payments? Will they start using privacy coins? Will they start you know, using mixers and other technologies to obfuscate what they're doing? I'd love to hear your views on that, if we'll see more of this activity and how these guys may get a little more clever going forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. So, so you know, just, for, just for clarity, right? So one of the initiatives that I led in, in the innovation team at, at Cisco was around, and this is prior, actually immediately prior to my blockchain time there, uh, was kind of driving you know, market intelligence and research around cybersecurity threat intelligence. How do we actually perform collaboration and, and do so in such a way that you know, when, when an institution or an organize, uh, organization realizes that there's a compromise that's at play, and that there's now a mitigation strategy around that. How do we distribute that mitigation strategy to, you know, a, the value chain that that customer might be a part of, but do so without inadvertently informing, you know, the hackers, right? And so you have to not only identify that there's a compromise yeah. in place, uh, but you also have to be able to effectively communicate that, you know, in secret, in confidence. And so there's a lot of really interesting uh, encryption techniques that are applied there. Uh, a lot of data mining and machine learning analytics that's being applied to kind of real-time traffic. Um, so that's there's there's a lot of work that's that's going on in that space. And so and so as I look at what's going on right now, I think one of the things we have to realize and and admit is that uh, the hackers are just as innovative as anybody else, right? Uh, so it's not like they're playing catch up. In in fact, in terms of the technology mm -hmm. and yeah. the capabilities that are out there, I would say in some in some cases you know, they're actually ahead in terms of technology. So why right? do they keep using Bitcoin, Anoop? Because <laughs> Bitcoin is 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 anonymous, right? But you know, I think the reality is is that a lot of folks don't quite realize that there's nothing actually anonymous about Bitcoin. I mean, right? For for, for the average trader, you know, the average person who's going to be using it, you have to you know satisfy KYC AML requirements. So there is nothing anonymous. But you know, the idea that there, you know, there is this belief that there's just an address out there that is is going to get funded at some point, and and ho the hopes that this address is not tied to a specific identity or or what have you is is, I know it's a mystery to me why 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 you know these these cyber criminals are are using Bitcoin. Um, right. That, that's and, why I keep thinking: Are we going to see an uptick in Monero? Or you know, where does it go? It's it's a it's a good question, and I think what we'll likely see is ransomware that is basically you know where where, where the payments are actually load balanced across a number of networks to kind of make it harder to identify, harder to track down, and you know that that's no different than any other advanced persisted threat that's out there. Uh, a number of years ago, long, long time ago, actually, my, my, my wife and I, we had a, a small consulting company and we helped build a, a system for tracking weapons of mass destruction and biological agents. And, you know, a couple of months ago, it, it, it occurred to me, like, if we had a blockchain technology to drive all of this, you know, that would have been immensely powerful. Yeah. Uh, and it would have been, it would have been interesting even even in in uh, even in in the scenario where you've got critical infrastructure being compromised right where 
where because you've got a, a now a, a decentralized uh, mechanism for identifying and mitigating threats, you know, you've just made it so much harder to compromise infrastructure, right? Yeah. And, and gathering all of that intelligence in real time and, and, you know, and again, off of a completely decentralized distributed uh, operating environment, I think makes it really, really interesting from a defense perspective, right? And how do you protect infrastructure? And That's such a, such a great point. Yeah, because you think about how fragile infrastructure is with what happened with Colonial. It's almost I mean, shocking. So, so I'm, a, I'm a big believer that perimeter-based security, which is a classical security model, which is you defend your gates, you, you defend your doors right. to, and to prevent you know, uh, unauthorized access into your home that model doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And yeah. so and so what we really need are perimeterless security uh, mechanisms. You know, I'm a big believer that when we start introducing technologies like blockchain technology into security solutions, we can actually create a self-interrogating uh, operating environment, right? So so if you've got a bunch of devices our appliances that you know are in an in an operating environment and a new device or a new application appliance shows up the first thing it, it should do is prove that it's actually authorized to be there in proximity with all these other devices and so you have this now the ability for a network to interrogate a specific device and really say well prove to me that you're supposed to be here and the only answer should be, well, here's an address on a blockchain network. The network can now go off and interrogate that address and independently prove to themselves that there is actually oh, a work order that was triggered at 3.45 a.m. issued by a certain individual that enabled the provisioning of an appliance or a device or an application into a local operating environment, right? And so now you've got this, this kind of continuous uh, evaluation of, of you know, a, uh, an, an operating environment where you're interrogating everybody. And I, and I think that just adds to resiliency and security overall. Anoop, I have to say, I think I grew 10 million new brain cells since you've been talking in this interview. <laughs> I would love to be your disciple for life. Honestly, I've learned so much. And unfortunately, we've got to wrap it up if it's okay. And we didn't prep you for this. But for our guests, we like to close these uh, interviews with a series of rapid fire questions. So don't think too much. Okay, three questions. The first one, Dogecoin, buy or sell? Buy. Corporations in the blockchain space, are they going the right pace or too slow? Too slow. And since Amazon just bought MGM, uh, which owns the James Bond franchise, shaken or stirred? Both. Ah, that's the best answer. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Anoop. It has been a pleasure, as always, listening and learning from you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. And Anoop, where can people reach you? Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter, so just at Ananra, A-N-A-N-N-R-A. That's probably the easiest way to kind of get grab my attention. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, folks. Well, everyone, thank you.
thank you again for joining us here at Open Out Crypto. Colleen, as always, I loved hearing your thoughts and the discussion that we had. I thought Anoop was brilliant as well. Always happy uh, to hear his thoughts, especially co coming from a, a corporation like AWS. Um, so for everyone listening, please, uh, wherever you do get your podcasts, make sure you like us, rate us well, please <laughs> uh, tell your friends and subscribe as well to openoutcrypto.substack.com or substack.openoutcrypto.com. We have a newsletter that accompanies this podcast. Uh, you can also always go to openoutcrypto.com. You can find Colleen and me as well, uh, tweeting on Twitter and writing on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out to us with other ideas, guests that you may have that you'd like to hear on this show. Uh, and we're looking forward to uh, speaking with you again soon. So thanks again, Colleen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Rumi. Thanks for listening to Open Out Crypto. Please reach out to us on Twitter at Open Out Crypto and by email at info at openoutcrypto.com. Check out our website for show notes and other information about the show, our hosts, and our guests. Thanks for listening.